Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee, and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottel, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast is for you. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Best Practices in Human Resource podcast. And I am super excited to have you guys here. This is going to be another epic episode and uh, very exciting because we do have um, we have a, a pretty cool guest coming on today. And I am looking forward to sharing that interview with you. Um, if this is your first time listening, thank you so much. This is uh, this is a fun show to listen to. It's very it, trying to make it very informative for everybody uh getting a lot of really positive feedback about it so if you've never listened to the show before you're certainly going to be in for a treat today and for those of you who are coming back time and time again thank you so much you guys are just absolutely awesome and it's because of you all of you is the reason why i continue to do this and help get the information out there and get and get the good message circulating around So I am here to help share with you the what and the how in human resources. Now, I'm in the human business, and that means a greater number of dynamics exist in the workplace that employers have to figure out how to balance and manage. And today, most importantly, we're going to be talking about some employment law changes that are taking place across the nation, and I'm going to share with you later in the show where you can get access to these as well. Now, the main topic today, again, very cool episode. Um, We're going to be talking about things that impact the U.S. labor market with the Honorable Scott Taylor. Um, We've got the HR question of the day, got some upcoming events for you, and also I'm going to share with you how you can get uh, my best practices delivered directly to your inbox. Now, the information that is available in this podcast is, in fact, for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing any form of legal advice. You should contact your attorney to obtain legal advice with respect to any particular issue. And if you do not have an employment attorney, by all means, reach out to me, and I may be able to refer one to you through our affiliates program and our friends over at Jackson Lewis. Okay, so let's take a look at what's going on across the nation as far as HR stuff happening. Now, public service announcement, and and anybody who's listened to this podcast series long enough knows that... I preach that getting your I-9s in line is one of the easiest compliance wins out there. And for those of you who haven't done it and you're wanting, it's been on your to-do list, here's some good news. Employers must start using the new form, the new I-9 form, effective on May 1st, 2020. Now, in the show notes, I've got some additional information that you can jump into and grab a little public service announcement in there go ahead and uh, jump on over and take a look at those and you'll be able to get access to the information so that you know what you need to do in order to be compliant. 
So over in California, there's some recent changes to the California Consumer for Privacy Act, or CCPA, uh, that may require employers to revisit their privacy notice as it relates to their employees. I've also got some updates on uh, down in Florida on the St. Petersburg wage theft notice and posting requirements, as well as recent amendments to the Pinellas County uh, wage theft ordinance that's currently in place. So a little shakeup going on down in Florida right now. And over in New Jersey, their Department of There is so much to learn and to know about today's changing environment, and educating yourself is absolutely critical. And it's my stance in the show that we are exposed to a very opine media and that global reach of communication where perception is reality or becomes it very shortly after. Now, the laws that come into play are really are a mix between what lawmakers are interpreting the people of the U.S. need and want, and actions impacting the labor market is a result of those interpretations. And it feels like in today's world of instant knowledge that most actions of our legislative branch are highly driven by political agenda, and there's a good deal of that mindset that is actually true. However, for an HR professional to understand how legislative and administrative change impacts the labor market, and more importantly, how to respond and react is a critical key component in their role. So let me step back for a moment and share what I mean by response and react. So reactions are just that. They're an instantaneous action performed or a feeling experienced in response to a situation, event, or even some form of stimuli. Now knee-jerk reactions are also exactly that. <laughs> a person's defenses are at their peak point instinctively, and, and you pretty much know it when you see it. But a response is different. A response is a clear-headed, calm, intellectual, logical reply. And as HR professionals, through our experience, some of those a little harder than others, we learn how to taper our reactions and create better responses, or at least that's the goal. It's a continuous goal, and it's a continuous improvement thing. And I can guarantee you that every now and again, you're not as really on your game, okay? But one time in my career, I could remember um, my initial reaction to the introduction of 12 executive orders that literally left my head spinning and a nearly uncontrollable desire to hit my call to action button. And in 2015, I attended a legal symposium on government contracting. That's where I learned about this stuff. And it's an event that I attend when it's hosted. I absolutely love it. It's my favorite event to attend because I always learn practical information that I take back and apply to my business and not to mention my clients. And I can guarantee you, you will never meet anybody else who gets more giggly stupid over going to a government contracting legal symposium than me. <laughs> Just absolutely love it. In, in this particular session, I spent a whirlwind, blew me off my socks, eight hours learning about 10 executive orders that President Obama had put into effect and those changes that were taking place with the OFCCP. Now, these changes weren't redesigning the landscape of what government contractors needed to do in order to remain compliant in the workplace. These changes actually narrowed it significantly, and it made doing business a little bit more complicated. Now, the way I've always explained this in the past is that if any of you have ever seen the movie Get Smart or the television program Get Smart, they have something called the Cone of Silence. And it's an imaginary cone that if they want to speak privately, it appears. So imagine this cone of silence and it becomes a cone of compliance, right? And with government contracting, that cone narrows significantly. 
Right. So during this conference, I immediately started assessing in my head the increased number of steps that we as HR practitioners would need to take in order to adhere to the increased levels of those compliance that we were prepared to engage in. And I started thinking through the number of clients I had who were operating at the absolute bare minimum. What kind of additional costs would they potentially unexpectedly incur with the need to produce additional information, reports, absorb new knowledge, and different proficiencies? And these new revelations were also rolled out the same year as most of my clients were also required to adhere to the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. So it was a very busy time. And at the end of the day, I looked at my coworker, and we were extremely exhausted emotionally. I mean, we were just beat down from the massive data download that we had received. There are three different ways in which employment law is shaped. Legislatively, which means that it exists through laws that are passed at the federal, state, and local level. And in past episodes, I've spoken about patchwork law and its meaning, being that states will enact an extension to the federal law or, for example, like in case of marijuana use, enact a law that overrides the use of a Scheduled One substance. That's just an example. Now, the patchwork simply means that the application of the law is patchy in the overall fabric of the country. So back in the day when uh, all the different states had uh, unique laws pertaining to the ability to drink at what age, some laws were 21 and over, other laws were 18 and over. And, and so therefore it created different patches. So we weren't all following the same thing until the federal government actually you know, regulated it that it was 21 across the board. So case law is different. Case law is where the interpretation of the law is ruled upon from a particular lawsuit or legal action between parties in the courts, ultimately creating a form of a legal precedence. In other words, it's something that we follow because that's what this particular ruling came out as. And this is where a great deal of our best practices actually stem from as we learn from the court's rulings on how to actually proceed. Now, the executive order, <clears throat> this is where the president may use his legal authority to put in place a rule to the executive branch of the government, and that rule having the force of a law. So I'll admit that in my 20-plus years being in HR, I've been very skeptical as to how much research goes into learning about the needs of businesses prior to legislation being put into place. And the Affordable Care Act, for example, was one of those laws. Now, early in the month, in the Next Gen Women in HR Facebook community, we focused in on a case study that helps us participate a better understanding, or helps participants better understand how employment is calculated in order for professionals to make adjustments to their talent strategies. It's a very important concept. And this led to a very fantastic interview I had with the Honorable Scott Taylor, who served as Virginia's second congressional district congressman in the House of Representatives from 2017 until 2019. As a member of Congress, he provided some valuable insight to the process of a bill's introduction to the establishment of a law. So for those listening to the show on a regular basis and part of the Next Gen Women in HR community, know that I do not bring political discussions into the fold. And this interview does not contain any political banner, but more of an academic and real-world experienced look at the behind-the-scenes actions in Congress, how legislators built their knowledge of issues in the U.S., and the process of determining how they vote. And this is coming from somebody who has had the honor and the fortune of sitting in the seat and actually doing the work. So it's a pretty cool interview. So here's my time with Scott. Okay, folks, I've got an 
awesome guest here today. I've been working on getting this down, and I'm super excited that he's here. Uh, he is actually a, a gentleman that's going to provide some pretty unique insight to how the government gets their information and what members of Congress actually do when it comes to passing law and legislation. So this goes right from the heart of the matter, somebody who's been involved, and specifically we're going to be looking at what happens on the HR front and how Congress learns about employment law changes, requirements, things like that, and then also um, get to what is it like in the first 18 to 24 months of a new president or a new administration's term and what that means for somebody like Scott Taylor. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you, of course, and your listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really glad that we got a chance to do this. We've been in, so we've got an HR community. It's called the Next Gen Women in HR. And a lot of what we're doing, thanks, and a lot of what we're doing is we're actually educating women in HR, because this is a very feminine-driven industry, on all things human resources. And since, you know, back when we had, uh, we were working together, or your office, and I was part of something to actually help eradicate the Cadillac tax for the Affordable Care Act, um, it just really, this is this is just a topic that's already set with me. So it's it's really awesome to actually be able to bring this to everybody who's listening, so I, I really appreciate you taking your time. Thanks. Well, I can tell you that I've always been surrounded by strong women. Was raised by a single mother, so I got nothing <laughs> but respect. They, you know, women run my life now. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> so, can you give a very quick, brief background? Because I know your time is limited right at the moment. Sure. But where you come from, who you are, what your career path has been, so people kind of get an idea of who you are if they're not in the Virginia area. No problem. So I was raised on the eastern shore uh, in Maryland, raised by a single mother, four kids in the house, working poor, uh, started working on a, on a farm at age 11. And um, and then I left that. I had a mentor, a big brother, big sisters program, and uh, which sort of gave me confidence and self-worth and, and enough to leave that small town and with the goal of becoming a United States Navy SEAL. So I went to the Navy and became a SEAL for just over eight years, spent a bunch of time in South America and at least um, – before getting out, and then I did some stuff in real estate, still do. I also went back and forth to Yemen for four years, doing um, critical infrastructure and security consulting there. Used my GI Bill to get a, a degree from Harvard University in international relations, finishing up a master's from there right now in the same field. Spent two terms as a state representative and then uh, and one term as a U.S. congressman, where I'm running again for U.S. Congress. Yeah, that's great. So, a lot of people know that I don't discuss politics, so this is going to be kind of an interesting spin having a politician on a non-political show. <laughs> but I, don't, I don't like politics that much either. I know, and you're so great. That's the whole reason why I wanted you on, because <laughs> we've gotten a chance to kind of know each other over the years. So, you know, Scott's a really good guy, so that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you oh, on. Thank you. You're welcome. So, um, so everybody knows, just short version, that, you know, anytime a bill gets passed, it has to go through the House, goes through the Senate. And then it winds up on the president's desk and it has to get blessed, right? That's the short after school special version that we've all grown up learning. But really, <laughs> but really, so, you know, how does, so when it comes to things like employment law specifically and, or, you know, healthcare, you know, like we did healthcare reform many years ago. When it comes to these types of topics, as somebody who's in seat in Congress, how does this information filter to you if you aren't the one that's part of the drafting of the bill? So let's talk about that, and then we'll talk about how the bill actually goes through uh, yes. a little bit more um, nuanced. 
So information-wise, you know, it, it depends on if, if it's employment law, if it's healthcare. It's gonna, that those things are going to come to their respective committees. So, you know, whether it's you or I who introduced the bill itself, um, it, it will go to whatever the respective committee of jurisdiction is, and then that then that committee will work on it, committee staff. And before that even happens, so if you're, you're introducing a bill, for example, and less than 3% of bills actually become law because it's actually really tough to uh, to pass legislation. But, but you know, the, the way that you come up with the information flows, let's say it's your bill, you either, one, you know about it already, Two, it was an idea that was given to you by, you know, a constituent or a special interest group or something like that that, that that talks to you and you decide that you want to advance that type of legislation, whether it's employment law or not. There's also CRS reports, Congressional Resource Service. So there, there are a lot of resources for Congress people to get information. Now, there's a ton of information, right? So uh, so if you typically, if I'm introducing a bill, I know something about the subject or, you know, whether it's my background, whether it's my constituent who's given me a good idea, whether I've studied up on it, whether people in my my staff who t- you know tend like so f- for example for me, I'm not a healthcare guy, but I have a healthcare staffer, right? So mm-hmm. you rely on your staffers to help you out with information. That's if it's my bill. If it's my if it's not my bill, and I'm on the I'm on the committee, for example, or even not on the committee, then you also rely. I might not, if it, let's say it's an employee law uh, bill that comes through, and I don't know enough about that, so I got to do some studying on either Congressional Resource Service, I rely on my staff, and the reality is because of all the bills that come through, if it's not my bill, if I'm not on the committee, but I'm going to have to take a vote on it, then I will rely on my staff um, to an expert on my staff to either one be an expert themselves in employment law mm-hmm. or two they find the expert and then make recommendations for me for for votes a lot of people sometimes you know criticize uh, congress members well you didn't read the bill and stuff like that well that's impossible because there's tons of bills with like, you know thousands you, of yeah it's thousands. like have you actually seen how thick one is <laughs> yeah it's just impossible so so you have to rely on your staff um that's like the last, the last layer, you know, like I'll, for me personally, you rely on your staff on the bills and then my chief of staff reviews them as well uh, for another, actually three, three. So I'd have my legislative staff reviews it, my legislative director reviews it, and then my chief of staff reviews it to make sure that number one, there's, there's no poison pills, if you will, that are, that are mm-hmm. against what I believe and that they're in line with my beliefs before they make recommendations for me to read, you know, read the summary and, and then decide whether I support it or not. So there's tons of information out there. There's tons of places to get resources. And that that's also can be a problem, right? Because it's just information sort of overload. But right. that's typically how it is. And you know, you mentioned the bills get, you know, put in put in the subcommittee and then full committee and then the House and, the, and then it has to go over to the Senate, same thing. But the reality is it's there's there's so many steps in between. You got to get it in a posture where it's acceptable to the committee of jurisdiction staff, then it's acceptable to that chairperson, then it's acceptable to that subcommittee, then it's acceptable to the committee, then it's acceptable to the House, <laughs> and then the same thing to the Senate. So it's difficult to pass legislation. You know, that's why only that's why 97% of bills that are introduced do not become law. Yeah, and I don't think people really truly understand. I'm glad you put this out there because it doesn't have to do with just an HR bill or, you know, human resources or, you know, employment law related. I mean, this this goes 
this is the same path that just about anything that gets submitted for consideration has to that, go through. That's right, and I think something that's <laughs> valuable for your listeners is you can make a difference in informing your member of Congress to, you know, if there are bills that are already being submitted that are out there that are that are very harmful to your business, like you mentioned the Cadillac tax, mm-hmm. you know, um, if, if there's something that can be very harmful, or if there's if there is a a gap in 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 law that could be beneficial to the industry or to or that you're working in, for example, you can you can definitely uh, and you can definitely contact your local member of Congress who is the closest to you, obviously closer than a senator, and give them. Uh, Opinions and get or give them um, information about your industry, because the reality is, I mean, the bills that I've submitted, just about all of them, didn't come from me. That was that was what I really enjoyed the most. Is you know, I mean, the the gentleman that I met with when we were talking about the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you and I bumped into the hallway in the hallway on my way to that meeting, and I just you know informed him why, and I got a chance to tell him it's like you know I actually work for an organization to where having an additional 40% tax come on top of what we're already paying for a premium health care plan so that, one, we can stay competitive in the workplace, and number two, we can actually really, truly, honestly provide our employees with the best care because we actually sponsored 100% of the benefit at that time. We didn't have an employee contribution. And mm-hmm. so for somebody like us, I mean, that would, I mean, take what you spend on benefits and then multiply it by an additional 40%. That's a heavy bill to carry. Absolutely. You know, and that actually for small businesses can actually put a business completely out of business or it puts them in a position where they can't even meet the minimum essential requirements. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and then, you know. And sometimes I think, I think it's important to say that, you know, sometimes no, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, sometimes there are good intentions. Yes. But they don't understand the the, the unintended consequences, especially yes. to, you know, like small businesses, like which is exactly what you're just saying. Absolutely. And and what I know of this process is that, and I love how you made the call out, is like if there is something that you see out there that could put a, a negative impact on your business, you have to communicate that up to, you know, individuals like yourself who are in seat because if you don't know, you can't weigh that information into the consideration. One of the strengths and weaknesses of a representative body and democracies are, you know, the representatives come from all different backgrounds. Yeah. So, for example, if it's, you know, there's some kind of dental policy that's coming, I don't know anything about dental policy. So I have to, re- <laughs> I have to rely on my staff right. and or dentists from an association or my district to to help inform me how this legislation or how this potential legislation could be helpful or harmful to them. So it is right. important to make your voice heard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's awesome. Thank you very much for sharing that. that I think that really gets – you know, some pretty solid direction and information out there. So here's a good question for you. Um, so anytime that we go through an election process, and, you know, obviously we're up against, you know, we're going to be coming into election term yet once again. I don't think people really understand what I hear out there that happens every new election is, oh, my gosh, there's going to be a ton of changes. You know, when uh, President Trump came in, there was a lot of questions as to, well, what kind of, you know, how is employment law going to be impacted? And it actually turned out it was quite delayed. There wasn't very much change that took place um, that rolled out from the Department of Labor down back to us again. So what is what is it like for a president once they take oath, and doesn't, you know, anybody, for the first 18 to 24 months? Sure. Well, let me first say that, 
you know, it all depends on the president's priorities, right? The administration's priorities, because the reality is government's massive and there's so many departments yeah. and things that are going on. And clearly, you know, whether it's Department of Labor or another department, you have careers that are there, right? That have mm-hmm. been there for 20 years. And that's a massive ship to turn. And so, so the reality is if, if a president isn't prioritizing certain things, well, they just sort of continue on the same path or maybe deviate slightly as the, as the new president comes in and puts his or her team in and mm-hmm. puts his or her political appointees in different positions. So, you know, it, it all depends on his priorities and or if that those political appointees are, you know, trying to change the thing, the system in a completely different way. But even mm-hmm. then, even if you have a, you know, a, a political appointee that is, you know, the head of a de- of Department of Labor, for example, and they want to make drastic changes, things just don't move drastically because, again, you have these entrenched bureaucracies uh, for good or for bad that are that are there and they sort of stifle mm-hmm. rapid change. And our government's just not set up, quite frankly, to have rapid change because what there you know there's obviously the checks and balances that, that we've all heard of course right. and the, and and the way the government is it, it is set up specifically for that so that you have checks on on departments and certainly on the on the executive branch so you don't have wild swings one way or the other and you have some sort of stability and tension so there's all our government is designed to have this tension that doesn't allow for massive swings on on, on either side now I mean, and that's 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 why you don't see you know a bunch of things that are changing very rapidly. Again, unless you have a president where he or she has like this, you know, this is their number one priority is to abolish you know a certain department or whatever it is. And even then, the, the department's never getting abolished, but they but they may change, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so you know, in in short, our system is just not set up for for drastic change. So that's why you just don't you don't see these. No crazy swings either way. Is there a place where people can go to actually see what bills are being introduced or what could be impacting? Like, say, for example, you know, somebody wanted to do some extra research on a particular bill, you know, proposed bill on employment law or, you know, something of that nature. Is there a place where they can go and actually review that information for themselves? Uh, there absolutely is. Uh, I apologize because I don't know the website off the top of my head. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, but I, mean, I, I can tell you Virginia's right off the top of my head because I was just there looking at a bill, Virginia LIS. But um, but yes, there is there is one at the at the federal. I, actually, I think it's just it's probably just Congress.gov or or something similar like that where you can search legislation that's been introduced. I'll find um, it. Yeah. Put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so the answer is absolutely yes. I just don't know which exact site it is. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I did catch you off guard. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to drop that one on you. No problem. But yes, there is because I would assume it would be public information. Yep, it's all public once it's once it's once they're introduced, right? Okay. So there's there are plenty of bills out there that Congress people are working on and drafts and stuff like that. But once they have in fact introduced it, it's public. Gotcha. Very good. Well, listen, I, I, I know you got to fly, so thank you so much for spending the time that you did. Um, certainly wish you the best of luck on, on what you're attacking for the future and your campaign goes well. So thank you very much for spending the time. Well, let me just say this again for all you, uh, you know, females out there, because, you know, you said it's, it's a f- dominated by the, you know, nothing but respect, love strong women, of course. And what I want to tell you is make sure your voice is heard because you might not yeah. like politics. 
You might not like politicians, but that is the way that we control our destiny. So so definitely get out there and, and make your voice heard. But thanks for having me so much. I really appreciate you. Now, as I mentioned briefly in the interview, I had the unique opportunity in 2017 to travel to Washington, D.C. with the Society of Human Resource for a day on the Hill and speak to staff members of Virginia's Senators and Representative Scott Taylor's office. And it was my firsthand experience in educating lawmakers specifically on the hardship that the Cadillac tax provision would impose on businesses. Now, for those of you who do not know what the Cadillac tax is, let me just go ahead and fill you in. Under the provisions of the Affordable Care Act, the Cadillac tax was a 40% excise tax on high-cost employer-sponsored health plans. Now, if anybody who does the books in business, and, and most of you in HR know, benefits and payroll expenses really are the top two line items on a company's profit and loss statement. They are the greatest expenses that a company will go ahead and pay out. And this tax required employees to pay an additional 40% in an effort to provide and influence employers to provide a lower employer-sponsored health plan. Now, the challenge with the 40% tax meant that companies were unable to provide a richer benefit for employees. And they helped drive up employees' out-of-pocket expenses and lower coverage for a reduced employee monthly rate. It also penalized employers who wanted to remain competitive in an increasingly difficult job market. So in December 2019, the Cadillac tax was repealed, and it was a real honor to be part of that contribution, even though my part was very small. But this is how it's done. And it was since 2015, that, that moment, that really gave me time and pause to look at the unfolding circumstances closely and figure out how I could start helping my clients prepare for what laws were likely to come to fruition or which ones were going to be left on the table. And this was a huge turning point. The one thing that I learned is that after I started digging in is that not all, all bills proceed through the process, and there's quite a few of them. So anybody can find this information by looking it up in, in uh, congress.gov. And then all you do in the advanced search is go ahead and click on which Congress you want to see and what they proposed, and you'll be able to find this information. So, for example, the 115th Congress actually reduced a total of 13,051 bills and resolutions, of which 115 became law. And you can find this information in the search. Of the 93rd Congress, <clears throat> which served from 1973 to 1974, they introduced 21,950 bills and resolutions, of which 688 actually became laws and went into effect. So not every Congress is equal. Some are going to be a little bit more, some are going to be a little bit less. Now presently, the 116th Congress has over 10,916 bills and resolutions introduced, of which a quick search revealed 25 of them impacts employment in some fashion where employers would be required to make some form of adjustment to remain compliant. And the easy way of finding that is you can add keywords as part of the search. Now, the search included resolutions and bill that include topics such as tax credits, indirect employment consequences, tax code changes, veteran employment, uh, grants, workplace development, retirement plans, and drug affordability. So if you've never had the opportunity to read a bill, in the show notes I've included a quick one-paragraph summary of the S.3256 that was introduced in the Senate on February 5th, 2020, is currently being reviewed by the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. And in short, this bill proposes that uh, it permits employers 
to, excuse me, permits employees to request changes to their work schedule without fear of any retaliation and then to ensure that employers consider these requests and requires employers to provide a more predictable and stable schedule for employees in certain occupations with evidence of unpredictable and unstable scheduling practices that negatively affect employees and for other purposes. Now, after reading the bill myself, I would be interested in seeing the data that was collected to support Senator Warren's findings as she is the sponsor of the bill. And I say this because I've worked in the retail industry for 26 years, and as a retail veteran, I don't agree with many of the statements that the preamble of this bill actually makes. And I can see how this bill becoming a law could drive workforce operating costs up in order to maintain the necessary staffing to meet demands of doing business, lessening the company's ability to reinvest in benefits and other opportunities to support the workforce, such as training and other fringe benefits. And this is how I analyze new legislation. I look at how new laws will impact the employees, how we need to modify HR administrative actions, and what type of financial impact will the law actually have on the company. And at the end of the day, all of this impacts our labor market as a whole and requires HR professionals to remain vigilant and pliable in how they set, administer, set and administer policy, coach employees, develop leadership knowledge, and advise executives, senior leaders, and business owners on employment matters. So I hope you guys have found this extremely helpful because I found it very, very fascinating. to give a shout out to all of the community members over in the next gen women in HR community we are on the eve of becoming 100 members strong I'm gonna talk some more about it with you guys a little bit later about it so it's pretty cool stuff and um, we've got some free webinars coming up in the Facebook group now this past February 21st is past Friday um, we had actually a uh, recorded webinar. It's up on live. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're interested in becoming a community member, you can still see this. And the webinar is how to make the most of the SHRM conference, which is uh, you know the national conference for all things HR. And this year it's taking place over in San Diego down in June. And um, I've been to it several times. I love the conference. Every time I leave, I always feel renewed and excited and this actually talks about from start to finish how anybody participating can uh, or attending it can actually make the most of their conference. Now Wednesday March 4th we've got another uh, webinar that's coming out and that is the common expensive I-9 mistakes that employers make. So again this is a free webinar over in the Next Gen Women in HR Facebook group. Um, also March 18th this is a live workshop taking place in Virginia Beach down in iFly, and it is called The Heartbreak of Office Romance, and those tickets are on sale. You can find the tickets if you go over to the website at the uh, at bestpractices.org, click on the events link, go to March 18th, and you will see where you can go ahead and sign up today. Now, if you're not in the area, this is going to repeat itself, but as a online webinar. And that webinar is going to take place on the 25th of March. And again, same place where you can go and find the link to go ahead and register for it. That link is over on bestpractices.org under the events tab. You'll find it there. And then lastly, over on Monday, March 23rd, uh, over in the Facebook group, we've got an open Q&A where anybody can go ahead uh, who's part of the group and just start asking their favorite HR questions and we'll go ahead and uh, go ahead and start answering those. 
Speaking of questions, <laughs> I love it when you guys send me questions. So go ahead, feel free. You can submit your questions on the bestpractices.work website. And by clicking on the podcast link from the menu and down towards the bottom of that page is a submission form for you to go ahead and post your question, which I may read and answer on an upcoming episode. So today's question gave me the willies. <laughs> Just be honest with you, it did. <laughs> And the question is, an employee I terminated has left me a sealed envelope titled, Now I Can Tell You What I Really Think. My question is, should I just shred it without opening, or is there something to be gained by actually reading it? And the answer is this. If you have received something, and it it comes from an employee, and it's sealed, you need to open it. All right? Now, here's the thing. It is very common when an employee leaves a company, especially when they leave involuntarily, that you, at some point in time, as they go through the process of separation, they get this huge wave of courage where they're just ready to tell you how horrible things are all the time, okay? There's nothing else for them to lose at that point. And so the mindset is to get all of that off of their chest. Some of it could be real, some of it could be perceived, some of it could, could be made up in their head, right? And, and that's just par for the course. And that's with anybody. It doesn't matter who you are and at what level. It's not uncommon for somebody to come back and say, hey, listen, I really want to tell you how it is, right? Usually they do it in verbal form, but, but it's not uncommon that they put it in writing. And part of it that they put it in writing is that they hope that it makes an actual record of it. So years ago, I may have mentioned this on, for some reason, I think I may have mentioned this on a previous episode. I don't remember which one, but I vaguely remember talking about it, but I'm going to do it again. So uh, several years ago, I was doing uh, an audit on employee files for one of my clients. And as we were going through stuff, the woman that managed the files really was not a person of authority. She was just an admin. And so I opened up a file. Sure enough, there was an envelope in there and it was sealed. And I said, do you know what's in this? And she goes, no, it's it came to me years ago we put it in there and we just never opened it up and i said okay so we need to open this so we need to read it because the worst thing that could happen is that if this employee were to file some sort of grievance against the company and take them to either you know through the eeo process or actually file a lawsuit and this file went into uh evidence that unsealed envelope which you have no idea what's in could be damning to the company well, sure enough, it was. So we opened it up and actually read a bona fide complaint of sexual harassment in the environment. Whether it was true or not, don't know. But the actual complaint was bona fide. And I say that because it was appropriately dated. It was professionally written to the company in letter format. It was signed by the employee, clearly legible name, clearly legible title, with a request for a follow-up call and uh, a couple other actions surrounding it. So, yeah, (laughs) not good, right? So when an employee says, you know, there's a sealed envelope, and I can tell you what I really think, you know what, just go ahead and read it. You know, I can't tell you what to do with it after that because there's like a bajillion different types of scenarios and I could tell you all bajillion answers and there's going to be one more one more thing that I didn't think of, right? And one more variable that came up. So, uh, you know what, you, if it's a situation to where like what I just described with you where it was a, a, a bona fide complaint or it was a viable complaint, you know what, you guys are just gonna have to take that next step. And if you have questions on it, your best bet honestly 
if you don't have anybody in-house that is knowledgeable on how to deal with something like that, or even you yourself may not have, you know, that type of experience, you know, there's always, there's always somebody out there that can help you out. You know, you guys can always reach out to me for guidance and advice, and you can always reach out to your employment attorney. And I strongly advise if you are going to get legal counsel that you do stick with an employment attorney. I like general counsel and they have their place Business counsel is great too, but you know what? Employment law is really such a specialty that if you if you put it in the hands of anybody who doesn't really fully understand the scope of employment law and that's their sole focus, I've seen it many times where uh, you know an employment attorney or excuse me an attorney has actually put a company in harm's way and now they have to defend it and that just makes it very very complicated. So um, you know if you have something that's ambiguous and you, and you really need that professional advice, you know what, making that 20 minute phone call, scanning the document over, having him review it, if you spend no more than an hour working on it, you know, it is the best money you could have possibly spent to actually get your, get some of that legal guidance in place. So um, it could potentially save you from, you know, $350,000 lawsuit. <laughs> so that's how that works. Now, I've mentioned to you in this back end of this episode, uh, the Next Gen Women in HR community. And, you know, over the past several weeks, you, you guys have listened to me talk about this. And it's a pretty awesome thing. Um, it's a lot of fun. We've got some great people in there. And like I said, we literally are on the eve of 100 members into the community. And what this is, is that I actually teach women and men who are performing the HR function the practical application steps for building a highly compliant HR infrastructure, creating unique learning opportunities for community members, and using critical thinking strategies to solve their people problems. And I dedicate a segment of this show each week to share this community and the type of work that we are working to achieve. My mission is to connect with 20,000 women in HR to positively impact the lives of 1 million employees in the workplace. And on January 6th of this year, I launched that initiative to build a tribe of women and men who want to be proficient in the field of human resources. I was very inspired to contribute to women in HR because on a regular basis, I had a lot of business owners and office admins coming up to me saying, I don't know anything about HR. I don't know where to look for information, and honestly, I'm afraid I'm going to be making a mistake. And I remember what that feeling was like. I remember what it felt like to be an HR army of one with limited or no resources. I remember what it felt like when I didn't think that I had the necessary support or knowledge, and I had to really dig deep and go with my gut and not feeling confident that I was right or if I had everything I needed in order to move forward. It was awful. <laughs> I remember what it was like when I wasn't supported and I remember what it was like to feel alone. So the Next Gen Women in HR member site is the place for women to come and learn and connect, share resources and go deep to understanding how to apply the new knowledge and to perform HR functions with tools and current resources. Most importantly, it is the place to get support. So in this decade, in this industry, and our changing world really is going to continue to present new challenges, exactly like the ones that I talk about on the show. Now there's two places that you can go to start doing this. So begin with the Next Gen Women in HR member site and invest in yourself. Go deeper, ask for help, find a mentor, participate in networking events, and connect one-on-one -on -one with other HR champions. You're going to be able to find the tools and the guidance from the most simplest of tasks, such as that goofy little I-9 form, 
to a much more complex project like a reduction in force. Join the next Women in HR site at bestpractices.org because in this industry you should be known for your talent, you should be paid for your skills, and wanted for your abilities. Next, you can also join the Next Gen Women in HR Facebook group, which is another great place to connect and interact. Here's where I share the information on how to network, how to brand yourself as an HR professional. I share case studies and HR scenarios. I give free how-to webinars. We've got special guests and share best practices on how to disconnect and recharge. It's also a place where we celebrate people's successes. Now, if you'd like more information, go ahead and feel free to shoot me a message on any one of my social sites, and I'll be happy to go ahead and direct you, or you can click the Connect link at the top of the bestpractices.org website, and I will get you the information that you need. Now, the HR industry is a feminine-driven industry, and yes, we do like our HI our guys do, and, and, you know, come on in. And we have men that are currently in the Facebook group. We have several new webinars scheduled that I mentioned earlier, and this community is where it's at. It's all about moving forward and what you can do to help keep up that momentum, and I can't wait to connect with you all. So if you're interested in coming into the group, or if you're already a tribe member listening to this podcast and you want to invite some of your other friends through Facebook, we actually have a couple of questions for you to answer, and it helps us gauge what your challenges are. So if you don't answer the questions, I'm going to send you a message and invite you to go ahead and go back in and re-answer those, those questions because this is actually a moderated site. We are very particular about making sure that who comes in really is an HR professional with true HR challenges. And to be honest with you, I've already uh, declined a couple of individuals who refuse to answer the questions or a couple of people actually have already presented them to be somebody else other than an HR professional. So we're really particular about this group. This really is for people who want to get serious about their HR career. So you can take your experience deeper by joining the Next Gen Women in HR member site at bestpractices.org. This is where you get to invest and learn the what and the how of HR by going deeper into the experience with that dedicated community to learn, grow, develop, connect with all those other people who want to learn or mentor and access and access those tools to help you perform this role. I also mentioned earlier in the role in this episode that you can read the HR news announcements that I share on the show as well as the ones that I don't share. Now I get about 40 to 50 of these a week and the links to these articles are now part of the Next Gen Women in HR site, the membership site on the bestpractices.org website as well. You can get monthly access to the site for less than three cups of coffee a week. All this information is updated weekly, and it's what helps me actually stay current in my profession as an HR pro, and it will absolutely do the same for you. Now, I look forward to connecting with you guys and cannot wait to have you part of this tribe. And if you guys have questions, don't be shy. Go ahead and feel free to reach out to me, and I'll jump right on it. Now, you can follow me over on Instagram and Facebook at Best Practices in HR. You can find me on Instagram, again, at Brenda the HR Lady. You can also find me on YouTube and LinkedIn just by looking at my name, which is Brenda Neckbottle, and the last name is spelled N-E-C-K, like the thing you want to choke, V as in Victor, A-T-A-L. And the website, again, is bestpractices.org, where you can click connect at the top of the page and get my best practices delivered directly into your inbox. So, folks, I want to thank you again so much for joining me. Uh, this has been a cool and fun episode. I've been wanting to do this one for a little while. And uh, making 2020 just happen with all these really interesting topics, uh, trying, to keep it, uh, trying to keep it interesting and shake it up for you guys. So 
Thank you again for joining me, and I look forward to catching you guys next week. It is the 50th episode next week, so I've got a heck of a guest. I'll talk to you guys later.